You are listening to an interview with James Meyer, produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture. Begin where, where to begin? I guess, well, the transition would be that Julian worked on Hal's book, The Art Architecture Complex. Um, he's credited as, you know, one of the sort of architectural sources or uh, advisors or, you know, what have you. And this book certainly had an impact at Princeton, um, and then Sylvia Levin, she wrote this book, Kissing Architecture, which didn't address minimalism explicitly, but it did address um, in art architecture axes. And Hal's book and her book were published roughly at the same time, and then they did a series of lectures called Kissing versus Complex. And um, it really brought minimalist discourse back into what we were talking about in the architecture department, at least at Princeton, if not within the field as a whole. And that I think reintroduced a discourse that was always strong within the school, but it also brought in West Coast minimalism, which is experiencing a you know really strong commercial resurgence. All this to say, this is why this was sort of piqued my interest initially. But going back to your work, your work on Truett and the Art and Polemics book, could you talk about just how you came to minimalism? Because you also came, not as late as I did, but you know, after after the fact of its initial spark, I see you more as a historian of minimalism. Would that is that accurate? I think I think that I would uh, say that's right. I think that the uh, effort that I made in the book uh, Minimalism Art and Polemics and the dissertation that preceded it was to historicize quote unquote minimalism to locate it historically to understand what it was. How did that word come about? Whom did it apply to? What narratives did it generate? When I uh, came up into graduate school at the end of the 80s, minimalism was already over. It had pretty much played out as a contemporary discussion, I would say probably by the mid-70s. But it seemed to be, or in fact was, the tendency that many of the people I studied with had written about as critics. They were the critics of minimalism, people like Michael Fried. I took a seminar with Rosalind Krauss. Those were uh, among the important critics of that tendency, as you know, and I was interested in what interested them and why that seemed the crux, as Hal Foster has referred to it, for the contemporary and the contemporary I'm speaking about was at the end of the 80s, really, when you had things like Neo Geo, Peter Halley, Jeff Koons, Heim Steinbeck, were then very current, and uh, there is a kind of minimalist aspect to all of their practices. So it seemed like the foundation of the contemporary at the time I was coming up. So I wanted to go back and to understand how this thing called minimalism emerged, what what did it refer to? Was it a, the kind of fixed entity that it seemed to be by the end of the 80s, which was people like Judd and Andre and Flavin and Morris and Will Witt? What, what was that, and, and, and how did that emerge? And so I looked back at it as a historian. Um, I felt that rather than try to write a new critical text, that what would be interesting would be to go back into the archives to really read everything that was written about it, about these practices, um, going back into the early 60s, and then to trace the different 
ideas, this discourse, this polemics, as I called it, because it, of course, was very polemical, very heated, these debates around these practices, and to turn it into a story, a narrative of minimalism. So, yes, it was very much a historical act, but it was also genealogical in insofar as I was interested in the discourse around the art as much as the art. And so the discourse as it wove into the exhibitions and the objects and the mutual dialogue among them. And so that's how it came to be called minimalism, art and polemics. It was a period when polemics was absolutely essential for the understanding of art and in some ways was almost more important to them the art. Uh, the case made for the art was primary. And often that case was made not only by the significant critics of the period, and there were many, including Lucy Lepard and Barbara Rose and Clement Greenberg and Freed and others, but the artists themselves, as you know, Judd and Morris, uh, Flavin, and then, of course, Smithson, Bachner. They were all writers, very significant writers, each of them. And they had gone to graduate school in some cases, or they were autodidacts in the case of Smithson and Andre in the other case. But they were all writers. And so they were very much um, contributing to that polemic. And, of course, it's been said that this art, uh, this very reduced abstraction, uh, negating meaning, negating uh, feeling, touch, subject matter, that act of negation, that this work apparently was engaged in, it needed to be justified, and, and it was language that arose around it uh, to, to justify, explain, make sense of it, as, of course, Smithson in his essay, Museum of Language in the Vicinity of Art, describes the polemics generated by the artists. So all of that interested me deeply, and I wanted, to, if you will, to, to understand what the great critics of the previous period had cut their teeth on, and why this why this art mattered so much. Even Truett, in a quiet way, in her own quiet way, was a writer and published her journals later, correct? Oh, yeah. She, she published three journals, and there was, there's the makings of another unpublished journal. Her, her writings really are uh, of a discrete category because she's not engaged in the polemical field that the others are, for a lot of reasons we could go into. And her journals, as you know, are very personal, in, in the framing of her art making. Um, they're more in the tradition of, say, the journals of Delacroix. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, that makes them very interesting documents, but they were not something that was, of course, published in art forum. They are in their own kind of realm within minimalist writing. It is kind of fascinating that, it seems to me at least, this is the first coherent movement made up of artists who all uh, have gone through higher education, or for the most part, I mean, even Andre, it, it seems like he didn't go to college, but he went to Andover, you know, one of the best high schools mm -hmm. in the country, at least at that time, just as an aside. Back to uh, methodology and how you came to minimalism. Um, as you were saying, Hopkins was a particularly robust program in the, in the 80s and 90s. And then, as I understand it, it also had a, a history of being um, a sort of, it was an important place for the import of French theory in the 60s the infamous structuralism conference with uh, Levi-Strauss and then Derrida's dethroning, you know, as it was later viewed. Was there any of that still in the air when you went to the program? Um, did you feel, was there 
a flavor in the art history department or anything sort of that characterized the you know Hopkins in particular? Well, it was certainly one reason I, I decided to go to grad school there is because of that history. So it was one reason I was attracted to that program. And you have to understand that when I was a graduate student, there were not many places to study uh, structuralist and post-structuralist ideas. I had gone to college at Yale, where, as you know, um, that was a very important site for that kind of work, and Derrida was coming to lecture, and I studied literature. The literature program uh, there um, had people like Barbara Johnson and Hillis Miller and other sort of post-structuralist critics, and I was very interested as an undergraduate in the potential application of those ideas in art history. When I then was in New York uh, at the Institute of Fine Arts, there was uh, no resources to study that stuff. And uh, in fact, when I tried to engage Kirk Varnado uh, about that, he was very dismissive. So luckily, I did take a seminar at CUNY with Krauss that I alluded to, and then went on to Johns Hopkins, where you had uh, Michael Fried and Yves Lambois. Fried had written uh, the book Realism Writing uh, Disfiguration, which was very much an engagement with Derridian ideas. And of course, Yves Lambois was a student of Roland Barthes and and Derrida, and really um, grew up with that material and deeply knowledgeable in it. Beyond the art history department, um, you had the Humanities Center, where Michael Fried was teaching, and many uh, kind of people who were um, engaged with that stuff. So yes, it was a very good place to work through those ideas and their applications to the visual uh, work of art. Getting into your dissertation, I suspect you would have to suppress the temptation to read works through those models taking a historicist tack, in that you it's, you very carefully um, sort of parse out who was reading what and who was interpreting works in what way and encouraging readings of their own work, in some cases the artists themselves. So I guess I'm just interested in... Uh, your, your interests in certain critical models and then the decision to be, be a historian and not a critic or theorist mm-hmm. in, in this particular exercise, yes. if that makes any sense. It makes a great deal of sense. First of all, I, there was a, a, a great deal of work going on then that was applying structuralist and post-structuralist models by other critics. So, I mean, it was very much being done. And so to historicize, to do work of history... Uh, like this, felt like something I that that would be different, something that mm-hmm. I could do that was different. You were under no obligation to do a straightforward history as a PhD in the program. I was under no obligation. When you're working with Yves Lambois, the only obligation is to really look carefully at the work of art. But Yves Lambois afforded a great space of freedom to do the kind of work you felt you needed to do. But the decision to do this, first of all, in the art history department at Hopkins, there was also uh, Elizabeth Cropper and Charles Dempsey, specialists in Renaissance and Baroque art, with whom I studied. And their approach um, to the Baroque was to read carefully the texts of the period. And I had done seminars with Cropper, where you're reading carefully you know, the writings of people like Mel Vizia, the Bolognese critic of the 1630s. And... Uh, sort of really trying to locate the ideas, the work of art in in respect to the ideas, the discourse of the period. So I would say that I was deeply marked by my studies with them, particularly with Cropper as well. 
So it was about, uh, and I would say that if you read Michael Fried very carefully or Yves Lambois very carefully, they are locating the work of art within the particular historical formation in which it emerged, the discursive formation in which it emerged. So the attempt of the book I wrote to locate minimalism within a certain historicity, it's absolutely precise in terms of, you know, this is the 60s and this is what this work meant uh, in 1963 versus what it meant in 68. That historical precision that I tried, I don't know if I succeeded, but I tried to bring to the discourse can also be found, I think, in the writings, um, you know, Fried's writings on theatricality in in the 18th century, or in Bois' writings on on the historicity of Cubist semiotics and Russian formalism. They're both occurring in the teens. So that historical locating of discourse and art was pervasive. You know, they're not just writing kind of interpretations or critical readings, enlisting... Uh, theoretical models, they're actually historians as well. Mm -hmm. But beyond this, I really felt that the subject of minimalism really needed that historical work. It hadn't been done, and it needed historicization. And so I was going to approach it in that very historical way. That said, if you know the book, you'll know that um, I describe minimalism as a field, a field of positions in which artists like Judd and Flavin and Morris occupy, that you have this field of abstraction at that period, you know, post-abstract expressionist abstraction. It's, they're engaging objects, mostly. I mean, there is minimalist painting, obviously, and Stella is in the book, but the, the discourse is really around the object or the sculptural thing. And so you have these different possibilities of making objects, and um, that I describe as a field, a field of possibilities. And that was very much a structuralist way of looking at things. You to, understand it by its difference, or differential in, relations. Indeed. To simply say that Judd is Judd, and that Flavin is Flavin, and that each of them is an author system uh, that makes them very specific. I certainly understood this empirically by looking at their work. That, you know, if you look at Judd and you look at Flavin, who were very close friends, their work is incredibly different. It's not just that you know, Anne Truitt and Judd are incredibly different. It's mm-hmm. that Flavin, the most proximate, the closest of friends, their work is incredibly different. So it was an empirical reaction to the differences on the work of art. <clears throat> but if you have really uh, read Roland Bard, if you've read Bard on... Sir Racine and, and, and his essay, Criticism and Truth, defending that book, he's really looking at an artist's work as a system and that it has a specificity that makes it it. And so there's absolutely a, an integrated structuralist view of artistic, uh, of, the, of the artist, if you will, and his work that then um, in this book uh, you put together six systems and you get a field. So no, structuralism was very much at the core of this book, even though it then turns into a diachronic narrative, right? I mean, so a strict structuralist account would, would be synchronic alone. This book then takes a synchronic view of the minimal field and stages it in time, diachronically, uh, as a, a narrative. Because th- there's a story to be told, and I have a narrative desire 
and minimalism, it wasn't just a synchrony. It, it really um, unfolds, you know, year by year, I, I argue, um, and shifts in terms of who's in the system year by year. That's, I like that description because then year by year you take the sort of static map itself and then examine it and then take another slice the next year and examine the positions, you know, sort of almost spatially. It's, I'm sort of caricaturing structuralism or my, my understanding of it. It makes more sense now, um, the methodology, because it's historical but still somewhat bracketed off from social, political, economic factors. I, and I think to... Uh, a good effect in that it you know it brings a certain clarity and rigor to it. Uh, the book has been um, criticized by s- certain social art historians that that it includes the the social. There is an argument in in one of the chapters that that brings in an Adornian idea of negation. That in that book the argument is that if there is a politics to this art, it's it's its desire to negate reference, and that that classically modernist that. Dornian refusal is a, if you will, a political gesture. I did feel that, you know, it was such a complex subject, I mean, simply to narrate minimalism's emergence, um, that uh, a social art history would have been a different project. And uh, I've heard social art historical accounts, for example, um, you know, looking at Donald Judd and anarchism and his politics and you can talk about Carl Andre and his quote-unquote Marxism. And, and, and I see those sorts of readings as actually quite consistent with what I've done because they really attend to the specificity of each of those artists and their particular politics, if you will. So that what I'm saying is this book can give a foundation for a, a more sort of focused social reading of particular works, particular artists. I admire that methodology. Um, even as I was thinking about doing this interview, I was overwhelmed trying to think of how I would, you know, structure a series of questions that wouldn't spin off into uh, the complexities of the of the movement and its social political context. I particularly liked the chapter on Barbara Rose's ABC art because, in a footnote, you sort of spell out several important theoretical and literary works that had been translated um, just at the crux of the late 50s and the early 60s, and how she, she sort of puts them all into, packs them all into the essay. And while it maybe muddies it up a bit, in my opinion, it also speaks to the complexity of the moment in terms of just this influx of very serious and interesting continental philosophy early translations of Wittgenstein, Merleau-Ponty, Roland Barthes, literary works by Beckett and Robrier were all coming into the into the states at this particular moment. And like I said, while she jams it all into this essay, um, there is a certain reality to the kind of plethora of thought that was available at that time. It's, it's actually a very uh, underrated and uh, I think significant essay it lacks rigor, but it, it's precisely the lack of rigor of ABC art that I think is, as you're suggesting, reflective of the energy in the New York art and literary scene at that moment. It's published, I think, in early 65. And yes, she's marshalling a lot of different sources. Merleau-Ponty um, was certainly important. The new novel, yes, it's, it's coming into play very much. The novels of Rob Gruyere and Natalie Sarote you have uh, this publisher called Barney Rossett, who runs something called Grove Press, and he's publishing uh, some of that stuff. You have Evergreen Review 
coming in in the late 50s, early 60s, um, I think that Le Monde d'Auger, The World is Object, that essay by Bart about Senradam's paintings of churches, where he's describing a vision of surfaces, if you will, which uh, Svetlana Alpers would later describe as the art of describing, is absolutely sympathetic to his, his essays about Rob Grier and uh, fiction that's looking at surfaces, that's making no claims uh, beyond uh, the fact that you know, this is the real and there's no symbolic meaning behind these surfaces. So phenomenology, the new novel, uh, Roland Barthes, an earlier Roland Barthes, if you will, who's writing on Rob Grier, there's this mix of ideas um, in the early 60s, kind of coming into New York from France, often in translation, and you, of course, mentioned Wittgenstein, so his investigations are being, I think, translated in this period and published, the Brown and the Blue Books, and they're not easily reconciled. Mm-hmm. You know, Wittgenstein and Merleau-Ponty, you know, they're both very current. How do you reconcile those two discourses, those two minds? Wittgenstein being, as we know, very important for Jasper Johns and, and for Robert Morris, you know, interrogation of, of, of language and meaning and, and that could lead to something like Joseph Kossuth versus phenomenology or, or the phenomenology of, of Merleau-Ponty, uh, interest in the body. Of course, as you know, Merleau-Ponty gets very interested in language, but the Merleau-Ponty that could be relevant for minimalism is a non-linguistic, perceptual, embodied phenomenology. So how do you reconcile those two things? And so something like ABC art is ushering in that uh, discussion, along with, of course, Susan Sontag's criticism of that same moment uh, against interpretation, Mm. which Barbara Rose knew. Against interpretation is 64, ABC is 65. So it's a really exciting moment, isn't it? And then how do you then think about that in respect to minimal art? Because really most of those artists... We're not really engaged with that stuff. I mean, Morris, very engaged with those ideas at the time, but Carl Andre wasn't, and Flavin wasn't. And mm-hmm. So one interesting thing about ABC art is that so Barbara Rose is, is bringing a kind of discursivity into the discussion of the minimal, of this work, of this abstract sculpture, which hadn't been there before. You know, it was more of a um, formalist description of, of the object, you know, Judd, Judd's criticism. and uh, The artists didn't like the, the essay. They didn't like being uh, seen as a movement. Nobody likes to be lumped together and kind of branded as a movement. And ABC Art did, in a sense, help invent the movement. As Barbara uh, Rose wrote, she, her essay, quote, created a vogue for minimal art. So it had a kind of popularizing aspect, which... The artist may not have liked, and the essay has been a little bit disdained, you know. But on the other hand, as you're suggesting, it had this literary and philosophical aspect, which was new, and which would be very inspirational for for another generation of writers. I'm speaking, of course, of Smithson and Bachner, where a literary philosophical purchase on this sculpture is, is brought to the fore, uh, they take some of the references in, in that Barbara Rose introduces and run with them and absolutely transform criticism at that time. I really like the quotes from Smithson that were spliced into your book. He seems to take the legs out of Judd's formless criticism, you know, with just these pithy little allusions to things like science fiction 
and futurism, or um, trying to think of what he wrote about Judd in particular that seemed to irk him. But it has to do with the, the what I perceive, looking back at the work now, as its illusionistic qualities, which square very well with the science fiction of the day. You also, going back to the Barbara Rose essay, implied that some of the artists resented what seemed to be an appeal to literary authority, you know, citing Robegrier and Bart as uh, legitimizing factors from the literary world. I think it just wasn't necessary. You know, it wasn't necessary. And, you know, and also what's so so interesting in her essay, she's bringing in, you know, cinema, you know, Warhol's Empire, mm-hmm. Real Time, the films of Alan René, which, of course, engages Rob Grier. And she also, of course, talks about Warhol. She talks about... I think the Brillo boxes are included in that article as as an image, and not just Warhol's film, Empire, but the Brillos. So there's a real mixing in of the pop and, you know, non-abstract. And that's a real issue at that time, you know, sort of what is the difference between minimalism and pop? And there'd been an essay, as you know, that Irving Sandler had written called The New Coulard, where he puts Flavin next to, you know, Warhol, so, you know, there's this attempt to distance one's work from pop. M- most of the min- so-called minimalists didn't really like pop art. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's tricky because at a moment, there were times when pop looked an awful lot like minimalism and vice versa. I mean, Judd's more chromatic work and Stella's irregular polygons look positively pop to me now in, in terms of just pure aesthetics, divorcing it from you know the context of the rest of their work. And also, um, like Richard Archfogger's uh, box in Primary Structures, the Primary Structure show. I mean, you know, what was it? Was it, was pink, it pop applique or it was The it? pink tablecloth. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, as you know, Hal Foster, in, in, in the crux of minimalism piece, um, the, kind of the end of that essay, really talks about minimalism and pop in a kind of dialectic at that period in terms of reference and abstraction, but that they're absolutely in a kind of dialectical um, interaction. And I, I think that's absolutely right. I would also say that we can say that um, after the fact, when we had something like minimalism and pop, you know, where they, they had actually been named and, if you will, separated out. As I say in, 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 in early on in, in the book I wrote, early on there wasn't really um, a minimalism and a pop, that they were all kind of in it together. They're all in the mm. same galleries, you know, the gallery, like Green Gallery was showing both, you know, Judd and um, Oldenburg, and of course, you know, Judd writes about Oldenburg, and mm-hmm. that, that in, in some ways, as you're suggesting, some of those minimalists are really, um, their work or their th- thinking is, if you will, very engaged with or close to pop art, that there wasn't a minimalism and a pop, that it's much more kind of imbricated crossings between artists, dialogues between, well, I think Judd and Oldenburg being a really you know, powerful dialogue. And an odd pairing, too. Well, not, not for Judd. I mean, for Judd, it's not odd at all that for Judd, you know, Oldenburg is making objects, and they are whole, and mm-hmm. they are whole things, and that he relates more, I think, to to, to Oldenburg than he would to Morris. You know, mm-hmm. he would feel closer to that than to Morris. I guess I'm speaking from uh, you know a contemporary perspective. Before even reading their texts, just looking at the work, I had recently been to Marfa and I was surprised to see a giant Klaus Oldenburg. You know, in the middle of the campus. Yeah. In my mind, the the West Coast minimalists looked more at home with Judd's work, which 
would have been anathema to him at the time, I would imagine, to be compared to, I don't know, John McCracken or Larry Bell. That's actually uh, not the case. We have to be very careful about dividing, uh, making this binarism, this antimony between East Coast and West Coast. I've argued against that. I've really sort of suggested that, you know, it's a field, and that field has um, different players and, and... I like to think of McCracken and Bell and some of the others as part of that field. And because of commercial jet aviation being made available in the United States, widely available by the late 50s, and LAX Airport being developed, that, you know, those artists, it was very back and forth, actually. And Larry Bell and McCracken spent a lot of time in New York. And uh, Judd spent time in Larry Bell's studio, uh, Bell has told me that and watched Larry Bell make his glass. You know, how does Larry Bell tint his glass a vacuum coating machine? And Judd watched those procedures. He was very interested in Bell's work. So I think that actually more work needs to be done in terms of really tracing those intersections. So I, I'm very skeptical. First of all, yes, there was this paradigm of East Coast and West Coast. It was staged in primary structures quite deliberately in the front room, as we know, Smithson versus Judy Chicago, that that was part of the field to say, oh, there's West Coast and there's East Coast. But I personally think it, that really um, simplifies the matter and that artists like Bell and McCracken are deeply engaged with East Coast work. You look at McCracken's notebooks and there's lots of discussions of Newman and Kelly and Mm. very engaged with East Coast work. Even before they went to New York, they read the art magazines, they they knew what was going on. You know, Art Forum, as you know, starts often in L.A. before it goes to New York. I mean, there's a lot of back and forth. So, no, uh, Judd is very interested, I think, in, in Bell and Bell and Judd. That's interesting, and as you point out, one of the more heated debates or uh, dialogues was between Morris and Judd, which again, you know, as just an art student looking at their work, they're usually grouped together in the same chapters of art history books or, you know, catalogs on minimalism. I was surprised to learn, on the one hand, that they were showing back-to-back at Green Gallery, you know, one show. It was almost a call and response, both Mm -hmm. in the shows and the texts they were writing about one another. On the other hand, it was it was heated, and they you know defining their differences seemed to be driving the work, even to the point where it seemed to me that Morris was almost almost engaging serious formalism just because the game was afoot, or more seriously than he would have had it not been afoot. Yeah, no, well, I mean they were they were uh, both were highly educated. They both had master's degrees, um, wrote master's papers, and so on, and were engaged in in a polemic uh, with each other in some way. Uh, I think we must can't over um, estimate the the importance of personal interactions that gets lost in art history. But basically, who got along? And um, Oldenburg and Judd uh, were friends. And one could say, well, maybe it was the respect for the work that led to the friendship, or the friendship then generated uh, respect for the work. But quite simply, I just don't think that Judd and Morris got along. And um, mm. I think I recount how the story about how Judd pushed uh, Morris's wheels around the Green Gallery. Right. And yeah. uh, you can read that in different ways. I mean, a lot of those Morris's, as you know, started off being props, and the mm-hmm. wheels was meant to be pushed. But then once it's installed in a gallery, 
maybe it's meant to be static. We'd have to explore that, but I think that it was interpreted as a sign of disrespect. And Judd's not thinking wheels was particularly um, strong, that it could be moved, that it, that it wasn't a f- significant, stable thing. So yes, the polemics between them um, can get very heated with, with Morris in Notes on Sculpture, and uh, sort of insisting that sculpture... First of all, that his work is sculpture to begin with, and that important uh, contemporary practice is sculpture. Uh, after Judd had, of course, said that it's an object in his attempt to set up a non-medium that is neither painting nor sculpture, Morris is coming along and saying, um, it, it is sculpture. Sculpture is what matters. It should have no color, uh, i.e. no pictorial uh, aspects, i.e. Judd's uh, work had a lot of color, as we know. And it should um, respect gravity. That's, of course, why it can't be on the wall. It should really respect gravity and be directly on the floor. And, and of course, Judd is not um, enough illustrating the centrality of gravity by having reliefs. And, of course, seriality. Uh, Morris, at that point, is sort of saying seriality breaks up the gestalt. It makes things hard to take in as a gestalt. And his narrative at that point is, is a gestaltist one. And so that uh, is a trashing or negation of a Judd uh, stack or a Judd progression. So yes, uh, count by count, it seems that the essay Notes on Sculpture by Morris is a kind of, um, I'm not Donald Judd. And as we, of course, later learned, Judd, um, in a conversation that you can find in a manuscript, um, said, uh, Bob Morris says that I can't have color, you know, to hell with Bob Morris. Of course, it goes back even earlier with uh, Judd reviewing the uh, exhibition Black, White, and Gray in Hartford, Hmm. where he's um, describing Morris and Rauschenberg, Rauschenberg's white painting and Morris's pale gray polyhedrons as minimal. And, uh, and at that point, of course, the minimal was an insult. It's sort of saying there's not enough to, to look at here, and uh, it, it's barely art. You know, It's on that border between art and not art. It's in that space of a Duchampian ready-made, um, but not through a commercial object reference, but through a form that is so pared down that it, it could practically be a, not, not a work of art. And he's making that case around Morris, so, yes, they always were in um, uh, odds, always. I think that animates the minimal field. I think that brings a great richness to the discussion, the fact that they are at op- you know, almost kind of opposites, even though it looks so similar. It couldn't be more dissimilar in many ways. You know, the reverberations of that would continue much, much later with Roberta Smith's incredibly uh, nasty review of Morris's retrospective in the Guggenheim in 93, where she just mm. basically says this is, there's nothing, nothing original here, he's completely derivative, and that's been said about Morris a lot, and of course it couldn't be less true. And of course Roberta Smith was, was Judd's assistant, you know, mm. and so she's a Juddian, and uh, so she was imbibing Judd's anti-Morris bias from, from the beginning. So, so it, it's, a, it's a huge divide within that field.
this is pure gossip, but I remember a Facebook post from Jerry Saltz. I don't know if you know, he's very active on Facebook. He has one of the most widely visited pages. But um, there was an art forum recently that had an extended article on Robert Morris, and he said something to the extent of, oh, great, you know, another art forum article on Robert Morris's crappy sculptures that were always crappy. And, you know, really? Yeah, he just rails on him. And, right. You know, so there you go. But what I enjoyed about reading your close readings of those texts was that it opened up what Freed opened up for me as an undergrad when I was reading through his collected essays, which was a different kind of close reading of objects that seemed specific to the time, that was highly sophisticated, perhaps by being set up in this in, the, in these differential relations to art that really is, you know, it seems quite silent to me, at least, you know, again, as an undergrad looking at Stella's irregular polygons, I was kind of at a loss before reading Freed. There's not much there, but it becomes rich in the reading, which, and this might be a reach, but resounded with me when I was learning a little bit about new criticism, the idea that you isolate the work from a, you know, from its context and just look at internal relations. And it seems that with new criticism, you can almost, depending on the sophistication of the critic, you can, you can almost close read anything. You know, you can write volumes about, uh, very simple things, which I'm still sort of confused about because it's, it's you know, it seems the sophistication of the critic, not, not the complexity of the work. And so Judd's suspicion of Morris's lack of complexity, but then his own reluctance to admit to the complexity that he was programming into his work seems an unresolved contradiction. Whereas I think Stella was quite comfortable with the fact that he was programming in complexity into the, especially the irregular polygons. Well, I I think that both of those artists were very powerfully engaged with this project of negation that we consider, if you will, the the core of the minimal project. And um, Stella, with his black paintings, really hit hit that note. And as you know, Carl Andre wrote about those paintings in his essay, Preface to Stripe Painting. Stella's only interested in painting stripes. There's nothing else in his painting. No symbols, nothing, just painting, stripes. The stripes we know are motivated by the thickness of the support. He came up with the pattern in Vance. He used house painter's brushes. No nonsense execution. And so they were seen as radical negation, the black paintings. And so... By 66, um, he's moving into the regular polygons, having done several series of stripes, and he's trying to recomplicate things. So it's interesting that you're, you see them as very minimal, but actually he's trying to, um, I think, complicate painting again, and the next step is the protractor paintings. Judd, we know, reaches a point of great simplicity, um, probably around 64, some of 65, some of those boxes, you know, the brown box, it's just a brown box. I mean, it just can't get simpler. Uh, A, B, C, whatever you want to call it. But where do you go from there when you reach this degree zero? And that's, of course, not a new issue we know. Malevich, the black square, I mean, it's a recurring topos of modern art. And, of course, Yves Lamboise argued that in his uh, essay, uh, Painting the Task of Mourning, where he, you know, he, he sort of there was, of course, this idea of the end of painting that was current in postmodern uh, criticism, and Douglas Crimp writes an essay called The End of Painting, and even Lamboise is saying, well, actually, the end of painting and, and, and radical reduction 
uh, of the work of art leading to ready-made and no more art, that that's a recurring topos of modernity. So to look at the black paintings of Stella or the most simple boxes of Judd, which have reduced the work of art to this no point, if you will, this degree zero, is not a new idea. Um, in, in, but they did it again. And so there's a deep concern at that point you know, where do you go from there? And when Judd is saying about Morris's white cubes, you know, these are, these are minimal. These are, these are really minimal. He's saying that, if you will, Morris and the white paintings of Rauschenberg have gone too far. Like, that's a step beyond which he's not going to go, that he's not going to get that simple, that that's practically not a work of art. So he wants to keep some measure of complexity and he'll add, you know, maybe a, a bar or, or a second color or whatever. Judd wants to stop short of that ultimate degree zero. And, and he will argue, of course, about Barnett Newman, uh, his painting Shining Forth to George, that, you know, a painting by Newman is no simpler than one by Cezanne. They're reducing, and yet there's the problem of where do you go from there, and the problem of it being too minimal and no longer a work of art on one hand, or as Judd would say, no longer interesting, no longer interesting to look at. That's what Judd was worried about. So he, he needed to bring back, it seems to me, a, a measure of, of complexity, however he would do that. Stella, of course, will do something different. It will go from being very austere to progressively, you know, each step more and more uh, maximal. Um, so, so they have different itineraries in this regard, but they're both uh, concerned with this problem of reduction and what do you do after reduction. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And, I mean... I almost think that Judd sort of cheated in in after visiting Marfa, just the sheer scale of the complex. It seemed that the ability to spread out in the desert allowed him to continue the project of being just close enough to grant you know degree zero, as you say, to keep producing work. And also, the craft was, it seemed to me, progressively more refined. Yes, but, but if you think about Marfin, you think about the, the artillery sheds, which is, I would say, his greatest achievement as an artist. So it's 100 boxes divided into two sheds, uh, each different. I mean, it's the opposite of the degree zero. You know, it's, it's bewilderingly complex. It's a work that you cannot wrap your mind around. It's sublime. This is a problem he's 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 very mindful of, and but I think that already by '65 or '6, you know, when he's making his first metal pieces and the most simple ones in iron or painted brown box that you might have seen at Marfa, they're so simple that he needs to. They're great, but but you can't just make a whole career of that. And he begins very very much, I think, at that point to to up the ante to make things more complex and and therefore uh, he I would argue really starts to compose I mean he so the idea that it's a kind of non-compositional it's just not true the non-compositional led you to a simple box had the least amount of decisions and he, he backtracks and makes things increasingly it would seem to me um, comp- composed and complicated and you know those later uh, works with many, many panels of many colors, and they mm-hmm. don't follow a particular mm-hmm. system anymore. They're very much chosen and very much uh, composed, and, and they are relational. There's a real backing track from the negation, the non-relational dream that they had had around 1963 to 4. They step back, each of them, from that. 
you see that in Flav, and maybe Andre alone is the one who kind of holds on to that idea of uh, negation, still working, you know, with his system of one metal usually in a field, and if you will, he's sort of the most close to that minimalist idea of negation, non-composition, degree zero. Yeah, I think there's a similar tack in other artists who are engaging seriality at that time. I think I'm thinking specifically of Robert Mangold. His early works looked very much like minimalist works, but to keep going, you know, he became a painter's painter in the most uh, classical way. Yeah, I think it's hard to do, and I think Ryman is an interesting case where he he skirted around that degree zero, and it's not like he's going and, 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 and painting things in lots of colors and introducing other shapes. And I mean, he skirts the degree zero in a very, um, I think, sophisticated and, and generative way. I mean, the problem is, how do you keep making work you know, that's going to interest you? So he, he's able to flirt with that degree zero in a way that sustains him. Maybe on the issue of composition, then, uh, we can transition to talking a little bit about Anne Truitt, mm-hmm. if, if you don't mind. I'm fascinated with her work, and there's not a lot of scholarship out there on it. As you said, she wrote three journals, and she continued working well into the 90s. And I'm fascinated with her work, partially because of this issue of how do you program complexity? You put it nicely, it's it's uh, maximum complexity within the most minimal means or something like about that. About Truett. Yeah, about Truett. Mm. But she was composing. And as you point out, at sometimes, well, there's this rift, right? There's the, her painterly sensibility, and then there's her geometric or structural sensibility. And Wait, a rift between her and, say, Judd, or no? I or guess I in mean her own work. Two lines of thinking within her own work. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you can um, shed some light on that. You know, Greenberg will come in inevitably um, in terms of how her work was received. But I'm interested specifically in how she saw the relationship how she saw her own practice of composition. She, she obviously is a very interesting character, and as you suggest, uh, her work is hand-fabricated. She didn't make the boxes, she had them made, but then she painted it herself. She uh, laboriously painted and sanded each coat many times and, and chose the colors and composed and, and did all the sorts of things that we would think, quote-unquote, minimalists don't do or shouldn't do. Um, But that was her process, and it was about the infusion of meaning into an object. So her her operation is not to purge the artwork of symbolism and meaning and feeling and all those terms that sort of become suspect in New York in the early 60s. Rather, it's to reduce, to infuse the work with meaning and... She, it was she who talked about this, um, and I've described that operation as um, almost synecdocal, the idea that of a part to the whole. So if she can reduce to a point where she gives you this very impacted part, then it could signify a great, great deal. Through the abstractness, through the minimalness of it, you could bring in a great deal, or she could bring in a great deal of significance into her art. She says the more abstract, the more open, the more meaning that could come into it. So it's a very different operation uh, than some of the others and a very different process to uh, get at, to, to achieve that, that kind of fulsomeness of meaning. 
so abstraction was a privileged term for her, which almost makes me as a knee-jerk reaction say, well, that seems like a high modernist a- operation, you know, the exaltation of abstraction versus Morris's uh, literalism. Um, you know, it's a thing in the world there. Abstraction almost hints at another order, a world like ours, analogous to ours, but not ours. Do you think that's that's accurate in her work, that abstraction and that the object contained a sort of logic of its own, which was somehow outside of the ex- of our experience of it? Uh, I'm not quite sure I would describe her work in that way. I would say that it is a container of meaning. It's a refraction of meaning, and the meaning tends to be mnemonic. It tends to be a situation from the past that, that she glimpsed and that returns in the work of art. So it's, it's not separate from the world. It's very much about the world. But in order to, to make meaning of that experience, you need to encode it, embed it in an object. Rather than literally representing it. or Right. I mean, she did do figurative sculptures. Not very many of them survive. And they are not very good. In fact, they're bad. <laughs> yeah, and she would say that herself. And, and they were um, agonistic and expressionistic. She's not an expressionist. It's very important to clarify that although her work captures feeling, it's not expressionistic. She's not expressing her emotions through gesture, through r- depictions, through, through mimetic imagery. No, she is giving form to a situation and perhaps emotions that she might have felt in a very distanced, refracted way. And the minimal object, as we now call it, was a way of encoding that situation, that memory, the feelings of that moment in in an object, making them almost objective. But at the same time, hiding them. I mean, another interesting aspect of Truett you said abstraction, I would also describe it as opaque. Hmm. It is secretive. The meaning is secreted into the work. You know, it's all those layers of of meaning hidden into this thing. There are other artists at that period who are interested in secrets and hiding. You could say Johns, and you could say Will Witt, you know, with his boxes that are hiding things. Hmm. You could say Eva Hess, Mel Bachner's portrait of Hess, is all the synonyms for hiding, covering, wrapping, secreting. So she's not alone in this regard. But these very opaque, minimal, profoundly abstract things um, are containers of hidden, secreted uh, memory and, and feeling. So the anthropomorphic charge was thrown around a lot in the discourse, sometimes in, as a pejorative, sometimes not. For Freed it was. I actually liked the way he characterized Robert Morris's ring with the fluorescence. Um, You know, he said it was empty and that there was an anthropomorphic quality to it. And with it and works like it, minimal works, sometimes there's like a disquieting effect that happens when you encounter one in an empty room without expecting it, which he likens to meeting a person, you know, in a hallway, the similar kind of presence. And then he cites Tony Smith explicitly saying, you know, I'm interested in the mysteriousness of the object. And he tries to make an anthropomorphic charge at Tony Smith. Do you think Truett would have embraced or resisted that, the, the charge that her, 
her advanced work was anthropomorphic. I don't think that she would have appreciated Freed's, the dismissiveness of Freed's description of her work, of, of minimalist practice as, as, as anthropomorphic. For him, it is pejorative. And of course, I've argued that he finds that word in Donald Judd in specific objects. Judd is, is attacking work like Franz Klein, or I should say Mark de Suvero's sculpture as anthropomorphic. There's a long tradition of, of attacking the anthropomorphic in, in modernist sculpture in Judd, and then Judd saying that about the minimal. But in the case of Truitt, I, you, if you do read her journals, there's a point at which she describes her columns, particularly as, as like other persons. I can't remember the particular passage, but but not as a bad thing, that they have a presence, that they have those qualities that Freed is attacking, presence, anthropomorphism, and for her that's not a bad thing. She saw sculpture as about making meaning, and it's human beings who make that meaning. She was very interested in, in the problematic of, 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 of being a person who gets up in the morning and stands and, and experiences. She, she would describe what it, the courage, that was a word of hers, the courage it took to, to get up every morning and to, to go out into the world. So I think that her sculptures are embodiments of human experience. And I don't think that she saw that as a problem at all. And I don't think she saw the work of art having meaning embedded in it as a problem at all. In some ways, she she you know she's so divorced from the minimalist polemics of the day. Although she gets dragged into it, um, she's working here on her own and and creating works that are in 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 many ways unacceptable to minimalist polemics. She was, she did go to one of the best private colleges in the country, Bryn Mawr. And she studied clinical psychology. Is that correct? Mm. She didn't write polemical texts like uh, Morris and Judd. But did she, and also like you said, she was removed from the art world, more removed than the other major figures in your book, though she did uh, have relationships with Kenneth Nolan, for example, one of the color fielder uh, high modernists of the highest order. Were there intellectual models that she was appealing to for... uh, not legitimacy, but in the way that Judd's early studies in philosophy and his affiliation with the pragmatists, um, you know, seemed to drive the way he thought about the work, at least. Did Truett have something like that, you know, the, a, a sort of a model that anchored the way she thought about the work? There were many models. She was a deeply learned person, and I could go on and on about the different models, but one one really cannot overemphasize the importance of Marcel Proust for Truitt. She, in fact, translated or co-translated a book by the critic Germaine Bray about Marcel Proust and memory and time. So that's one of the first things she did was to translate a, a French book into English, a study of Proust. She was a great reader of Proust, in Proust, of course, you have one of the most important accounts of memory and how a work of art attempts to give form to memory. And as we know, her, her, her sculptures are embodiments of past experience. And she finds a very different form. Uh, it's not fiction. It's not prose. It's, it, it, there's nothing Proustian in the form of her works. But the, the ambition is uh, an attempt to capture uh, lost time. So there's a Proustian drive to her sculpture. Another model would be a Latin 
Latin poetry. She studied Latin uh, as, a, as a kid. Her mother was a very adept Latinist, and at Bryn Mawr she studied Latin. And uh, as she described Latin, the Latin sentence is one with very uh, strict rules, the different cases, and that has a, a really intelligent structure, how a Latin sentence, uh, the syntax of, of Latin fascinated her. So she tried very much to think about that as an analogy for her sculpture, that her sculpture is not only synecdochal, as I've argued, in its reduction of form to a minimum that could then dilate and bring in a great deal of significance, it is syntactical in that you have to walk around, particularly the the columns, the four sides, and try to reconcile those in your mind. And they are composed, as you suggested, and in some of them they have very different sides. Or it's the same color, but in different light from the same point of view. One is much lighter and one is much darker, even though it's the same color. How do you reconcile the same color because of the light looking different to your eye? You have to walk around and around it. The body in, in, of the spectator in Truett is uh, one who walks around, uh, reconciling the different aspects, and in the way, say, that, that Morris describes the minimal sculpture uh, in, in Notes and Sculpture. But rather than perceiving a kind of unary gestalt, as Morris describes, the different sides reconciling into a shape in your head, in the way Morris describes in Truett, the different sides don't reconcile, and um, it's a kind of additive experience, and she would describe syntactical, that you put these different pieces together and uh, in your mind, and uh, you will come up with the work, the different aspects capture for Truett a memory or experience, but opaquely, abstractly. Which is actually a really beautiful description of how you would experience a piece of architecture, too. You know, ideally, a, you know, a quality piece of architecture. I'm out of questions, mm. but you've made it incredibly easy for me, so thank you so much. Well, thank you, and but I do have a question for you. Oh, yeah, sure. And that would be, why do you want to talk about minimalism? Why you asked about how somebody uh, in my generation would be interested in, in, in that art and in that history, and I've said that for me it was sort of the immediate past, the past that preceded me, that people I had worked with had written about as critics, and it felt very present, the late 80s, 90s. But here we are in 2014, and here you are of a different generation, and you are um, coming to talk about minimalism, and I'm, I'm wanting to know why. What, what I would have thought that these issues... Um, that one that that I and others have rehistoricized this art and um, historicized those polemics, and why is this of interest to you now? That's a difficult question for me. A simple first response would be just that I have a background in studio art. I went to Cooper Union, which has a history of um, being progressive and minimalism, and more the discourse around minimalism still lingers in the studio discourse and how we're taught to look at things. I would say now, as someone studying architecture, I'm witnessing the death of close reading, and there's all sorts of theories around the irrelevance of the object and a sort of object apologetics in, in studio, in that 
it would be almost embarrassing to talk about programming complexity into the object. You want the object now to be aware of how networked it is into its environment, socially, politically, technologically, economically. And um, I find that kind of depressing, especially considering how rich the discourse around close reading was in, in the 60s and 70s in architecture. And that largely had to do with Peter Eisenman and his relationship to Krauss, which he publicized through this journal Oppositions. You know, it was like it was like Architecture's October, I guess. And the linguistic analogy, uh, specifically structural linguistics in architecture, was incredibly productive for how we read architecture as text. And that lingered a lot longer in architecture, perhaps, than it did in art. But um, we're kind of seeing the end of that. Peter just published a book called Ten Canonical Buildings, which is sort of a, a student's guide to that kind of way of looking at architectural object analysis. And while I'm sure he'll, he'll do more things, it also seems like the end of a cycle and the end of a sort of humanist, textual, literary interpretation of the architectural object. Now I think we're witnessing a more technocratic, sociological turn in architecture. Uh, one of my professors characterized it as the performative turn, the rise of the superstar engineer being one symptom. At Princeton, I'm seeing the end of that sort of legacy. It seems to be dying off. And so part of me wants to recuperate that, but at the same time, without reverting to models that are spent, you know, as we were saying earlier, I, you can't go back. But at the same time, there are parts of that discourse that I'd like to become more versed in as it's not being taught. There used to be a course that was infamous at Princeton, even well into the 2000s, that Peter taught called Formal Analysis, where we did just that. And using different models, some literary, some derived more from art practice, but it was close reading with, you know, graphic drawings, almost like a, a, a Whitcoe kind of legacy, but Peter's own take on that. But that seems to be irrelevant, and justifying a formal move in a studio critique using that sort of discourse is just a non-entity now. But are you saying, though, that so what you admire about minimalism is the seriousness of its reception, that that is a period where there is close readings of art and polemical seriousness that you feel is lacking at present? Yes, and a seriousness specifically located within the object, how you program in complexity, and also in interpretation. I don't know if that made sense. I, might, I may have muddied that up a bit, but... No, you're saying, well, we know very well that the minimal object and minimal sculpture did elicit, as we discussed, a great deal of polemical seriousness, the seriousness of reception. There was something about that work, but also of that period and of the people involved that created, that yielded, that focused analysis. And you feel that sort of, sort of missing at present. I do. In, in art criticism? Well, in architectural criticism, art criticism is a different issue. I think that where architectural theory can still be understood as a small group of definable camps, at least, art criticism, it seems to me, from the outside, again, not being an art historian, uh, as being sort of irreversibly pluralized. Um, I was talking about the kind of buffet of critical models that, you know, we have at our fingertips, which seems to negate the seriousness of any one of them. Again, that's a sweeping generalization, but... You know, it's also um, the making of art and the reception of art is now, of course, absolutely global, which is a good thing, but it means that 
there are many conversations going on, and there isn't really one rarely sees the kind of nexus of rigor and focus that one saw in the very very particular situation of New York in the 60s and 70s. It was a very particular situation, very local, and, and it produced all that. And we're now in a period, of course, of, of a geographical dispersion of, of the making and discussion of art. And there aren't those sorts of coherent, the degree of coherent discussions going on. Which on the one hand, I mean, I don't mean to say that I regret the sort of art world exploding into all of these different discourses. Obviously, there was so much left out of minimalism and minimalist discourse, individual people who were left out even. But something about the coherence of the conversation is very attractive to me and my generation, I think. Also, I mean, the work itself, too. I'm just fascinated by the objects themselves. Even now, seeing them in a hyper-commercial context, they still have, you know, this is a naughty word, but an aura or a presence. Um, And another naughty word, authority. They have authority. You can really say that there's something powerful, as you're suggesting, about this work. Which I don't think is just the fact that it's been canonized in art history. Surely that has something to do with it. But I think the work itself is... And I think it has to do with the seriousness of the discourse. The work itself is compelling um, today as it was then, not in the same way. Mm. Dave Hickey wrote an essay on um, this show that David Zwerner mounted a couple of years ago called Primary Atmospheres, and it was their attempt to sort of, I don't know, aggregate a critical mass of West Coast minimalism. And he commented how, you know, it's changed. You're seeing it in Manhattan and Chelsea and these mega galleries that you know might as well be museums but the show really or, or auction houses or auction houses or you know ferrari dealerships too exactly <laughs> you know? i mean let's you know, let's be real but the work still had a profound impact on me and i know a lot of my classmates part of going to cooper is um you know you don't get the liberal arts education you would at you know a Bryn Mawr or a swarthmore or something like that but there's this nice uh, system they have where it's understood that all the kids are seeing all the important shows and bringing that back into studio critiques. So that was one of the shows that we were all talking about, um, in spite of its commercialism and the fact that there were super slick objects that were being sold at exorbitant prices. And that the work is 50, 40, 50 years old. I mean, this is not contemporary art. It is historical art now, and yet you're saying... It still seemed fresh and, and strange. I thought mm. that's not yeah that's not a profound <laughs> observation but mm-hmm. but it's a gut it's a gut reaction it's a gut reaction and and that's important and which was the same reaction I had when I first encountered Truett's work you know now she's represented by a big deal gallery so you get to see her work more often than uh, I would imagine you used to um, but it did the same thing to me. I still thought this was work by a serious contemplative person, and I was attracted to that. Not that I'm discounting humor, I have nothing wrong with humor either. I like Haim Steinbeck too, you know. But, um, but Truett's work uh, compelled me to want to know more instantly. You know, it, it, like you were saying, that sort of secretive quality to it. I wanted to know everything about her and, you know, what the work was trying to say. And, and it doesn't uh, reveal itself, as, as, as we know, very easily. It is as we said, opaque, and um, I'm still still figuring it out. And Truett said that about her work, that it, people don't see it easily. It takes time. 
I also think the implications of her work for architecture are serious, at least in object-based architecture. I mean, there are many types of architecture. I'm interested in works that are, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a formalist, I guess, if, if anything. And I think the sort of dialogue between her surfaces and their, you know, what I'm calling their supports, the, the wooden boxes, is something that I'm trying to work through. Mm. And I think it has serious architectural implications. I mean, in postmodernism, there was this idea, po- POMO, you know, the style in architecture. There were lots of ecstatic colors and wacky elevations and, you know, interior designs that were garish. But there was never a very serious consideration of surface and structure in conversation with one another, in meaningful conversation, not just one ignoring the other. I thought the account was often that Frank Gehry's house in Santa Monica, there was a dislocation of the wall from the structure and that that was very important, that it was this destruction of the the glass curtain wall. The surface is congruent or expressive of the interior, the Miesian solution. So I, I thought that in fact, that the wall and or the surface and the interior was very much part of the postmodernist conversation too. No, how does Truitt? How does an, an, a sculpture by Anne Truitt? What does it bring to this? This is me very much stretching the analogy, but I think in postmodernism there was. Um, I mean, I, I think I can say this with some authority. There's there was a sort of schizophrenic rift between the interior and the elevation. The elevation was a sort of pop canvas to mm-hmm. be seen from the road, yeah. from a distance, to be digested like that in all of its semantic pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And it didn't have to have anything to do with the interior. In modernism, you're right, there was this sort of coherency between interior and exterior. That was the whole point. But there was never but the truth to materials thing also meant an austerity of surface. You know, it was either glass or it was plaster, you know, whitewashed boxes of corb or the metal and glass boxes of Mies. There was never any interest in what could happen on the elevation if you thought of it as a painterly surface. Mm. Postmodernism definitely thought of the elevation as a painterly surface. But one that was divorced from the interior and that was purely semantic and also kind of condescending in its pop, pandering to the to you know spectacle. Whereas Truett is somewhere in its, in between or in its own space between those two, two models. That I mean, it, the surface is congruent with the shape, and yet it's different from the shape. It's it's unresolved and deliberately so. It floats. I mean. It floats on the shape that it expresses. And she did work very hard to make it that way. As you, as you know, she described her color as filmic color, and she learned this idea of color from one of her art teachers. I can't remember who. Filmic color, so a color that you could almost imagine putting your hand through. So the color in Truett is very luminous. I hate to use the word, it transcends the object, um, but it is both of the object, embedded in the object, the paint seeps into the wood, and yet it sort of shimmers around the object at the same time. So there's a, there's a, a wonderful suspension between surface and shape in Truett. The other very, I mean, simple connection to minimalism, and I'm not alone in this, it's architecture, many, many camps within contemporary architecture are still concerned with rigorous geometric formalism. I mean, it, it can get very Baroque and garish, but formalism is not a dirty word in architecture necessarily. And so geometry matters to us the way that, it di- and the way that shape did to the minimalists. 
And in a lot of ways, contemporary sculpture, well, what is formalism in contemporary sculpture? There are formalists out there, but it's not the same kind of coherent conversation that it was, the seriousness that, with which the minimalists approached shape, and the high modernists, the color fielders, and Caro and the British school. That still resonates with us, I think. Well, I can see how these, these objects can give one a kind of model, you know, redacted. I mean, and, and problem, you know, the, all sorts of problems with, I mean, Hal's book was sort of driven by this initial observation that he had that there's this school of contemporary architecture that claims itself as minimalist or the inheritors of certain minimalist formal uh, concerns. But then they translate them very problematically into spectacle. So I, I'm not saying that you know there's a one-to-one correlation between what the minimalists were doing and what architects are, for, foremost architects are trying to do. Far from it. Mm. But nevertheless, there is some correlation, and for better or worse, a lot of architects do take the geometric conversations of the minimalists very seriously. You've been listening to an interview with James Meyer. The interviewer was Hans Tursak. The interview took place at the National Gallery of Art in September 2014. The producer was Hans Tursak. Produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture.